Jesus Christ, we come before you today as humble subjects in your kingdom, and we ask that you would show yourself and reveal yourself to us through your word read and your word preached, and we ask that you would be present to us in the sacrament. God, send your spirit out upon us to receive the good words of your scripture, and may they be for us the good news of life. Guard us from turning away from them so that we might avoid the damnation to come. We lift this up to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Jane, we're going to get you a bottle of water up here next time. I don't know what that's like. Have you ever been on a, a long road trip? The kind of road trip that's made longer by maybe a, a child of yours puking in the car seat or, uh, or you, know, you pick up a nail in your tire and it runs flat or, or maybe since we have no longer can get it from point A to point B without the help of a GPS, the GPS, God forbid, break down and not work any longer. Or, or maybe you've been on a road trip that's made longer by those kind of, a, we need them, but we don't, always don't like them around, those highway patrol officers that like to pull us over when we're trying to get somewhere quickly on the, one of those road trips. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you experienced one of these road trips? If you have, you know there's no better feeling than the one you get when you turn down your street and you see your driveway and you see your house and maybe even you can look through the window and see your couch or maybe your bed. You know that one that you're like, after a trip like this, I just need to collapse into my bed, collapse onto my couch, and be there for days. I don't want to see anyone. <laughs> and this is exactly what our lectionary passages present to us this morning. They present this, that there is nothing better than seeing the end in sight after a long and difficult journey. They give us a glimpse of the end of a long journey of this creation. This creation that God made that man has fouled through our rebellion. It gives us a glimpse of this, the end of this long journey. A journey marked by pain and suffering, sin and death, but a journey that is not forever marked by such things. Isn't that good news? We will go home. We will make it home one day and collapse into the arms of our good, good Father. Sin will not always possess power forever, and death will not always be alive in our lives or in this creation. There is a time coming, this is what our passage has told us, there is a time coming and will soon be here when the tears of pain and suffering will be wiped away for the final time, never to be shed again. Never to be shed again. Our scripture lessons this morning confidently and without doubt proclaim to us a fixed end and a certain future. In fact, set within the broader scope of Holy Scripture, they give us a completed picture of a future reality that Jesus Christ has already accomplished in his death, resurrection, and ascension. He's already accomplished the kingdom. He has already brought it into this world, just not in its fullness yet, but it's here. It's available through his death, resurrection, and ascension. 
And this end, and towards this end, he has commissioned us. When he poured out his Holy Spirit on, at Pentecost upon his church, he has commissioned us and empowered us, you and me, to live towards this goal of the kingdom of God that will come when Jesus Christ returns as king. And he's called us to live towards this and work towards this in our everyday lives. The hum and ho of life from day to day in our homes and in our workplaces and in Winston-Salem. That's what God has called us to do. That's what he has empowered us to do, to live and wait towards that coming day. This end that we see in our lectionary text and for which we work towards and long for. Don't we long for that? Just like you're on that long road trip, you long to be back home, right? Particularly if it's been a, a one made longer by all those things we mentioned or other things. We long to be home. Don't you long to be home? Don't you long to be home in the kingdom of God in its fullness here on earth as it is in heaven? Don't you long for the return of the king? The return of King Jesus to make all things new, to restore all things broken. Don't you long for the triumphant return of King Jesus to this world to establish his rule and to establish the kingdom of God forever. In Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, Jesus begins his final teaching on the coming kingdom of God and his eventual return as king to this earth. And Jesus begins with these words. You can turn there if you want in your pew Bibles, Matthew 25, verse 31, or you can just listen. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in glory, the Son of Man, Jesus is self-aware of this, Son of Man is a reference to himself. It's a reference to the Messiah, this coming King. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. What a vision that might be one day when we see that glory. I don't even, I have a hard time imagining what that's like. I just, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't know what that is like. But I know it's something I want to see. I know it's something I want to experience. That Jesus Christ will come in glory and sit on his glorious throne. I can't imagine it's anything other than just blinding light. Before him, before the Son of Man will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats onto the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Come. When Jesus returns to this earth as king, he will bring with him the kingdom of God in its fullness. Through the Spirit of God that Christ poured out on his church at Pentecost, we are given the new life of God's kingdom in advance of Jesus' return. This, this vision of Christ coming in glory to make all things new, to give us our inheritance of the kingdom, is available to us in some measure now. Through the Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians, the power that God raised Jesus from the dead with, he has given to you. You have the new life of the kingdom of God now. That's a beautiful reality. But even with that life we have now, we still long for the new life of the kingdom to come in its full. Do we not? 
After a year like this, don't we desire for all things to be made new? For the brokenness of our creation to be utterly restored and for there to be no coronavirus, for there to be no hatred and division, for there to be no racism in our country, for there to be no unrest, don't we desire that? That's what Jesus is bringing with him when he comes in the clouds in glory to sit on his throne. And we long for the return of King Jesus. His coming reign and kingdom will be marked by rescue and reconciliation. We long, we long for that. It'll be marked by feasting and rest. Don't you want to feast and rest in the kingdom after a long and wearying journey? And this kingdom will be marked also by justice and judgment. All these marks of Jesus' coming reign and kingdom are wrapped up in the image of the divine shepherd king that Jesus draws upon in Matthew 25. And that we heard read for us rather extensively in Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, God declares a future time when he will return to restore and renew his people. To that immediate audience that Ezekiel was writing to, that these words of Yahweh was addressed to, they had just been taken off in the first deportation to Babylon in 587-586 BCE. They have just been taken away from their homeland, and they desire to return home, as you can imagine. They, res- they desire for all things to be restored. And God comes to them and says, I will be your shepherd and lead you back. I will come. All those kings who have failed you, the kings of Israel who have failed you, and instead of feeding you, devoured you, and instead of protecting you, opened you up to harm, They will be done away with. I will judge them and I will come back as the shepherd king to restore. And so listen to the words of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, one more time, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 34 in Ezekiel. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep, that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the peoples, and gather them from the countries, and will bring them into their own land. The return of King Jesus, because this is fulfilled in Jesus. The return of King Jesus, when he establishes forever his reign over God's kingdom, will be marked by ultimate rescue, and reconciliation. The imagery of a scattered flock captures well the brokenness of our world due to human sin and depravity. Our sin scatters. It separates us. It alienates us. It isolates us from God and from one another. We are the lost sheep. Humanity is the lost sheep. Scattered, hopeless, apart from the divine shepherd who searches for and seeks out in order to rescue and reconcile us to himself and to one another. But notice in these few verses here 
that it is only by divine initiative. I will, I will, I will, I will, God says. There is no action by the sheep. The sheep are lost. If you know sheep, I mean, I, I mean, if I was a shepherd, maybe I might say that I might have like a positive word to say about sheep, but I'm not a shepherd. And everybody says they're rather dumb animals. So sheep, when they get lost, they don't know their way back to the fold. They don't know their way back home. And these sheep in the passage are stuck in a constant state of scatteredness, isolation, and separation from God and from one another. And it is only by God's initiative and his divine will that he comes and he seeks them out and he searches for them and he finds them. And later in the passage, he is the one who binds them up when they are broken and he mends them and restores them. It is only a divine initiative here. And 2,000 years ago, God sent his only son, Jesus, in his first advent, to be born of the Virgin Mary, to come in search of his lost sheep. In his first advent, Jesus, the divine human shepherd, in a mystery, right? In a paradox, in a surprising turn of events, the shepherd becomes a sacrificial lamb. And he offers himself on our behalf and in our place as an atonement for our sins. He comes in search of you. He comes seeking you and I out to restore us, to bring us reconciled to the Father. His death on our behalf makes it possible for us to be rescued and reconciled to God the Father and to one another. And God accepted his sacrifice and demonstrated his acceptance of it by raising him from the dead. That's God's approval, stamp of approval on Christ's actions on the cross. He raised him from the dead, and he has seated him on his divine throne, sharing rule with God the Father at his ascension. Jesus Christ is king right now over all the earth. He reigns and rules at this very moment, and one day he will come again, as our gospel reading proclaimed, and he will bring that rule about in its fullness on this earth. Not somewhere pie-in-the-sky fantasy world, but this earth, renewed and restored, as it says in Revelation. And so when King Jesus returns, he will gather together all sheep at the resurrection of the dead. None of his sheep will be lost or overlooked. And he will invite us to come and inherit the kingdom of God. And we will experience an intimacy with God and one another in his kingdom that is beyond our imagining. It is beyond our ability to even dream it up. How wonderful it will be to be united to God and to one another in heavenly bliss. This morning, I know some of you may be here may not know God in the sense of you might not be related to God. You might be separated from God. You might still be held captive by sin wandering this life in search of rescue, but ultimately unable to find it for yourself. And I want you to listen. I want you to hear in these words, through these texts, I want you to hear Jesus Christ calling out to you as the good shepherd, come, return to me. Turn from your sin. Bow the knee to me. And I will give you life everlasting. It's not too late. Don't resist his call. 
But know this, the kingdom of God is near and the coming of Christ is near and there is a time when it will be too late. That's not to scare you, it's just to be realistic with you. That's what the text says. And I also know there are others here this morning who are members of God's flock, his children, members of his church, but are experiencing a deep sense of separation from him. Or maybe sensing a deep sense of his absence in their life. For some, the deep sense of separation from God comes from unconfessed sin. And so I invite you, the Spirit of God invites you this morning to come and to confess that sin to God. If you need, come to me. Come to Father Ben or Father David. Confess that sin to God and receive the forgiveness and the absolution of God. And be reconciled to him. And for others of you, you may be experiencing a deep sense of God's absence in your life. What some have called the dark night of the soul. And this spiritual depression may stem from unmet expectations in your life or for your life or for the life of your children. It may stem from persistent physical, emotional, psychological ailments and trauma that you have experienced. Or you may not have a bead on why you're experiencing such such a felt sense of God's absence. But it's real. And it's painful. But hear this. Soon, very soon, Jesus Christ will pierce the horizon and he will return. And when he returns, he will put an end to such felt senses of his absence. There is an end in sight. The soon return of Jesus Christ declares confidently that the dark night does not last forever. The day will dawn when you hear the voice of your God near to you, calling your name and saying, Come, come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundations of the world. Come, take my festal garments and clothe yourself in my righteousness and in my honor. Come to the banquet table and sit here and feast with me in my kingdom. Come. When King Jesus returns, he will establish on this earth the kingdom of God in which we will experience ultimate rescue and reconciliation. All things will be made new. All pain, all hurt, all sorrow will be done away with. It will be abolished from this earth. But I want you also to know this, that even now we can experience this new life. We can experience in some measure the life of God's kingdom now through his spirit that he has given to us to indwell us. God is near, and God's power is available. His spirit has been given to us as a deposit, uh, as a guarantee of that kingdom to come. Look with me as Ezekiel, really as, as God continues in the middle of verse 13 in Ezekiel 34. And God says, I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. 
They shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. The return of King Jesus will be marked by feasting and rest when he establishes forever his reign over God's kingdom. There's a, there's a progression here that is chronological and logical in the workings of God. First, God brings rescue and reconciliation. We're united again to God. We're reconciled to one another. And then he brings us into the kingdom. And we can experience now the life of the kingdom, which is defined by feasting and rest. First comes rescue, reconciliation. Now feasting and rest. This is the movement of God as the divine shepherd king. And the imagery used here communicates a rich abundance and safety. You can hear the rich abundance of God's kingdom and King Jesus' reign in the three references to the goodness or the richness of the pasture land. And you probably know what, you probably know what this is evoking. If you've ever driven down the road and you've passed a field and you can see that it's lush. Maybe during the winter it's rye grass that's been planted for cattle or for other animals to graze during the winter. And it's just green when everything else is browned. This is what it's talking about. Rich pasture. Good pasture. Rich abundance. And you can also hear the safety of God's kingdom. It's, it's described in words that remind Israel of home. I will bring you to the mountain heights of Israel. I want to bring you back home, but a different home, a renewed home, a home that will be marked by inhabited places, places of order and life and human flourishing. I will bring you back there. God's kingdom will be marked and Christ's return will be marked by rich abundance and safety. And because of that, we will be able to feast and rest without worry and without concern. Aren't you ready for that? I know I am. All this, the rich abundance and safety, the fasting, the feasting, is made possible only because of the active presence of the shepherd there with his people. He's the one making this happen. Ezekiel communicates this clearly by crafting what we could call a, a poetic sandwich or a literary sandwich. It's, it's in the way the whole thing is put together. If you can imagine a sandwich, two slices of bread, one on top, one on bottom, and something in between, peanut butter and jelly, maybe a, a club sandwich, whatever you like, you can bring that to mind. But two pieces of bread, something in between. This passage is structured like this. In the first slice of bread, we hear God say, I will feed them. I will feed them. And then the second slice of bread on the bottom, we hear God say, I will be, I myself will be their shepherd. I will make them lie down. I am the one responsible for feeding them, for feasting. I am the one responsible for safety and rest. And what's in the middle? It's the sheep eating and lying down. The only way we eat and lie down, the only way we move, the only way we exist is by the Father, by Jesus Christ holding us together in this sandwich of provision and safety. He holds us together. In God's kingdom, our feasting and rest are surrounded and made possible by God's actions, not our own. It's made possible by God's actions and his choice to be our shepherd. But do notice that the sheep here act. 
in the first part of rescue and reconciliation, only God is acting. There's a deep truth there. Only God is the one who can reconcile you to himself and to one another. But now he's brought you into the kingdom, the life of the kingdom defined by feasting and rest. And now we get to partake. We get to do something. We get to eat and we get to sleep. That's cool. <laughs> if, uh, if, I'm, if I'm giving my opinion on the matter, that is great. We get to eat and we get to sleep. We get to fast, but we're working. The sheep are acting here. They are eating and lying down. They are doing something. In the section on rescue and reconciliation, we only saw that divine action. But now we see the people joining God in the work of the kingdom. Rescue and reconciliation are the necessary preconditions for life in God's kingdom. And feasting and rest describe the life of God's people in God's kingdom under the reign of King Jesus. So feasting in the scriptures is a fairly pregnant, uh, full concept. And it, as a concept, it involves both divine and humor, human labor. Right? The feasting is the culmination of divine and human labor. Listen to Moses in Deuteronomy 14. And this is referring to uh, the tithe. Moses says to the people, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year and before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there. And you shall eat the tithe of, of your grain and your wine and your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that, may, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Now, if you're too far away and you don't want to bring all this with you, he says, turn it into money. And then with that money, do this. And spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, buy it. And you shall eat it before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Feasting is the culmination of divine human labor. God's work, God has made a creation that provides richly for us. He brings the rain. He brings the rain to water the ground to produce the wealth of the earth. Our work is we tend and till. We do good work. We, we take things like grain and we make them better, like bread. I don't know if you've ever go around like having a pocket full of grain and just chewing on raw grain kernels, but it's not the best. I haven't tried it. I don't intend on trying it, but I do love bread. Ashley, my wife, makes wonderful bread. I love it. Take it right out of the oven and put butter on it. It is so much better than raw grain. God's work is to make raw grain. Our work is to take the good gifts of God and to make them into something better into bread. That's what he's commissioned us to do as human beings on this earth. God gives grapes. Grapes are good, but wine. Wine is so much better. Is it not? Grapes are good, but wine is better. Feasting is the culmination of divine and human co-laboring together in this creation. And when King Jesus returns and establishes God's kingdom on this earth as it is in heaven, we will work and have vocations. Work is not a part of the curse. The curse made work harder and more difficult and a pain. But there will be a time when Jesus Christ comes as king and we will work and we will love it. And we will reap the benefits of it in God's kingdom with God and one another. 
Each of these marks of, of Jesus' reign and his kingdom are available to you and to me through the Spirit of God that dwells in each of us as sons and daughters of the kingdom. All this is made available to us now in some small measure. And in the future, at the return of King Jesus, we will experience these marks. Rescue and reconciliation. Feasting and rest. In, the, in their fullness in the kingdom of God. Finally, look with me at verse 16, or listen to it. Yahweh does a bit of, of summary. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the stray. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. Rescue, reconciliation, healing, wholeness, feasting, and rest. I will do all these things. And now we find something new. And the fat and the strong sheep among you I will destroy. I will feed, which is a word that means tend or graze or shepherd. I will feed them in justice. In this verse, God summarizes what he has already said concerning rescue and reconciliation, but he adds to it now justice and judgment. And we love that positive message of the kingdom. Who doesn't want to feast and rest? Can anyone raise their hand if you don't want to feast and rest for all eternity in intimate fellowship with God and one another? No one. I didn't think so. But we don't like to talk about the other side of that, the judgment and the justice of God. When Christ returns, because when Christ returns, he brings both into this world. Our certain hope is that King Jesus will return in triumph. That in the end, good wins out over evil. That's our hope. That's our confident hope. We love this truth, and we should love it more and more, especially after the year and in the middle of the year that we've been experiencing. Yet the Christian hope for the triumph of good requires Jesus' justice and judgment. The failure to take seriously Jesus' claim to judge everyone on the last day at his return is at the heart of the church's crisis of faith and morals in this world. We have capitulated to the world because we have lost sight of the fact that when Jesus Christ returns as king, he comes as judge. We confess it every week but we forget it so easily. We who are defined by individual liberty, right? That's written into our founding documents as a nation. We who are defined by individual liberty and supposed autonomy believe that we should be entitled to define right and wrong for ourselves. Fallen humanity does not take kindly to the notion of Jesus as king and judge. This fallen human resistance to Jesus as king and judge is captured well in the last stanza of the famous uh, poem written by William Ernest Hensley entitled Invictus. Do you know the one I'm talking about? The last stanza goes like this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. He's talking about judgment. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That fallen conviction of Henley, that lie that he wrote into existence, that I am the master of my fate, tragically animates so much of our culture and our society. And far too often, it animates our lives as Christians and as the Church of Christ. Yet, when King Jesus returns, we will not measure judgment according to our own standards. He will not use our standards for right and wrong. He will use his own measuring stick to judge us by. 
And, he is a, and we don't want another one. We want his because he is the just judge. And here's the measure by which God will judge us when the, Jesus Christ returns. We will be judged according to whether or not we have submitted to the king. And this is what submission looks like. It looks like acts of love that participate in and extend further the love of Jesus Christ as the shepherd. In Matthew 25, Jesus invites into his kingdom those who, those who have loved others in the manner of the shepherd king. You heard it earlier. Why? He gives a reason why they can be invited into the kingdom of God. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. We see here the embodiment of the qualities of the divine shepherd king from Ezekiel 34. And that defined Jesus' life and ministry and should define our lives as his people submitted to his reign. Jesus, as the good shepherd, feeds. We're to feed. He restores and makes whole. We are to do what little part we can to do that in others' lives. At the final judgment, those who are blessed by God, who have received his grace, and who are invited to inherit his kingdom are those who are found loyal, faithful to the ways of the king as they await his return. And as we saw last week, vigilant loyalty to King Jesus is worked out through the love of one another, through the love of neighbor. And for Jesus, that means especially the love of the weak, the vulnerable, the scarred, the unseemly. And those who are found wanting, the goats, the ones who are on the left, those who are found wanting at the return of King Jesus and sentenced to go away into eternal punishment are those who did not love the broken, those who did not clothe the naked, those who did not feed the hungry. And in so doing and acting in those ways and not feeding and not clothing and not giving shelter, they rejected the king who reigns over the world. So through this beautifully desirable vision of the kingdom, rest, feasting, reconciliation, rescue, and through this awful vision of judgment, eternal damnation, King Jesus seeks to motivate and compel us to live loyal and submissive lives to him that manifest loyalty and submission through acts of love for one another and for all, especially the poor and the weak, the sick and the imprisoned, the orphaned and the widow. And as we close, here again, a portion of Psalm 95 as a word to us and as a call. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. May God help us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.